You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Now we're going to welcome my family and yours. Uh, Taylor Higgins had uh, a really rare opportunity, and uh, she's going to share about it now. I'm super jealous, so if you see me just green with envy while she's sharing, just slap me a couple times, and I'll snap out of it. No, I'm just kidding. Taylor, please share with us. Thank you so much. I'm excited to share with everyone. So, uh, yes, as Jason said, I had the opportunity to spend nine full days in the Holy Land in June. And it's an amazing place, and I definitely recommend that everybody go if you can. Uh, It will definitely change your life. It will change your walk with God for sure. So I'm going to share a little bit of my experience there. Hopefully, I'm going to stick to 15 minutes and uh, hopefully going to tell a story as well. So um, do we have the slides? Okay. So these are some fun pictures. Um, I'm going to share some more of the serious spiritual stuff, Um, but we had a really good time. It was a vacation of sorts, and so um, there's just lots of fun things to do there. It's a beautiful country, so um, what I'm going to share is a little bit more serious, but don't get me wrong, we had a lot of fun. So um, in that little picture, you can kind of see if you order the fish in Israel, it's a whole fish. So that was me pretending to bite the head. I didn't actually do that. But um, okay, so let's see here. So if we can go to the next slide. Okay, so it starts in a garden, and that's where we started our trip. And so a lot of you are probably familiar with Genesis, where God creates the whole earth. He creates all these different things, and then he creates humans, and then he puts them in a garden where he says this to them. Uh, And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, and they will be yours for food and all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. So when we think Garden of Eden, I think my image was always like this beautiful botanical garden with lots of flowers. That's not a super accurate picture of what the garden would have been. Gardens in Israel, especially in ancient times, were practical. They had things that sustained life. So things like fruits, uh, they would have had barley and wheat, they would have had figs, pomegranates, grapes. So it's important to really understand what a garden is because that's where everything started. Um, so that is, these are a few things that they would have had. Um, those are olive trees. Those are um, probably not super old, maybe 500 years or so. It's hard to tell just looking at the um, trunk. You actually have to look at the roots to tell how old they are. The oldest olive tree in Israel is probably about 6,000 years old. So potentially olive trees still exist that would have been here when Jesus was there. So that's cool. Um, Grapes are everywhere. They don't look like vineyards. If you've ever been to Napa, they just kind of grow in parts of the garden, so you see it all over the place. A lot of times in these really high trellises, which is neat. Uh, And then water, obviously super important for life, and I'm going to talk more about that in a little bit. Um, So yeah, it starts in a garden where things are fruitful and good and life-giving and sustaining. And then as you know, shortly after the verse I just read, things took a turn for the worst. And so sin entered, and God then said that 
life would still be sustainable and there would still be things that grow, but it would be by the toil of your, your hard work. It would be, um, when, one exact quote is, painful toil. So we know that part of the curse of sin was that it was going to be really, really hard work to get the ground to produce the things that we needed to eat. So the next slide. So on the left, you have an olive press. So if you can see, there's a long wooden log connected to a huge stone. And either humans, either slaves, or just people that, that worked on the estate or the land um, or animals would push that around so that the stone would go in a circle, crush all the olives, including the pit. So everything was crushed all together. And then that would produce olive oil. Olive oil is a really, really important thing in the ancient Israel times. So it's, we think of olive oil as like one of our many cooking options. For them, olive oil was the only cooking option. They didn't have other oils that they could use. Um, they also used it medicinally. It was to anoint. So there was the very purest of the olive oil, which would have been the first batch that would have come out. Um, that would be used to anoint. That's really um, that was really important, really valuable. And then it was also it was used for cooking. It also lit their homes. So um, little tiny lamps would have olive oil in it, and then they would light that. That's how they would see. The houses didn't have big windows, so there was some natural light. But even throughout the day, there the windows are very very small, so you needed light in the homes, and that would be olive oil. So it's a super super important thing that they produce. Um, additionally, the other picture is a wine press, and so all the young girls in the area, um, particularly usually the young unmarried women who didn't have children to tend to, they would come and they would stand in that uh, stone square and they would stomp wine with their feet. It would go down that center uh, wooden circle thing and it would come out there's a little kind of square thing, that's what would come out. Uh, there's huge stone, like just open um, storage areas where they would store wine. Um, on the other side, there's like a square window into a stone, um, big rock. That is where they would also store grapes. So the whole thing is very functional. It's actually a multi-step process. Um, and it was, again, by the toil of labor that, that these things would be produced. So it's important to recognize that Life was not easy for Jesus and, and the people that lived in that time. It was, every day was about getting the things you needed to survive. We, I think sometimes, or let me say this, I'll speak for myself, I forget that. I go to the grocery store, I get what I need, it's easy. I even complain about that, and it's so easy. And in their time, it was, it was a daily struggle. Every day was about getting the things they needed just to survive. So um, that is something I felt was really highlighted for me. I didn't put pictures in the slides, but there are tons and tons of ruins of um, Greek and Roman cities. And you really get a sense of the contrast between the way that the Greeks and the Romans lived. Their lives were about affluence. Not everybody, but those who had money in those societies. They had bathhouses and they had entertainment. They had massive amphitheaters built solely for the purposes of entertainment. And the Jews were called to live a different life. Their life was called to be about productivity and simplicity and hospitality. And I'll talk about that too. And I really feel like it's easy for me to forget how different they were called to be and how tempting it would have been for them with these lives of toil to go, I want to go live in the Greek city. That looks pretty nice. I went to Caesarea Philippi. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. Would have loved to live there. But of course, the whole thing is a temple to an idol. And so I, I think that was something that I felt was really highlighted is that 
It would have been extremely tempting when your life is about toil and work and simplicity and community to say, I want to go live like the Greeks do. They have fun and they, their lives were about pleasure very much so. Um, so that was definitely a highlight for me. So next slide. <clears throat> Sorry, not used to the microphone. Uh, okay, so then, as, as you know, sin not only brought in the fact that um, we have to work and toil, uh, it also, it, sometimes it leads us around the wilderness for a really long time. For the Israelites, a, a journey that should have taken about a week took them 40 years. And when you read that they wandered the wilderness, this is a small uh, depiction of what that was like. When they say wilderness, they mean nothing. There is nothing there. Even the water is dead. The water you can see there is the Dead Sea, and nothing grows, nothing lives. There are occasional springs that you find, and they, they gathered water when it would rain. So they did have some um, like villages and towns and things like that, but really you get a sense of that this is wasteland, um, which is really, I think something I hadn't really been able to visualize before, but when you're walking around there and it's 95-ish with high humidity and there's nothing around, you have only the water that you brought with you on your back, you really get a sense of the need for God's provision and you really get a sense of how it would have been difficult to trust God. Like, where's the food going to come from? Where's the water going to come from? The water that's here is so salty that you can't, it's not usable for anything. And so you really get a sense of that when you're wandering around this desert in that heat and, and really just looking around as far as you can see and there's absolutely nothing there. There is, to highlight my previous point about the um, uh, indulgence of the Greeks and the Romans, there is a palace on a, a plateau that Herod was building. So in the picture, the, the large picture in the upper left, that is looking up at a mountain called Masada, and Herod built one of his many very, very lavish palaces there. Um, it's possible he only ever went there one time, and we're talking about the equivalent of a billion-dollar palace. Um, so you get it, you get a real sense of how um, just lavish his life was, and that he could have those types of resources. Obviously, this was built with a lot of slave labor and and the exploitation of a lot of people, including a lot of Jewish people. So um, you do you do sort of see, even in the desert wilderness, you can kind of see some of those differences of like, Herod could essentially waste a lot of money on a palace that he went to one time in his life, um, which is really interesting. But you also get a sense on the top of Masada, again, of just the desolation of the wilderness because there's no water on the top of Masada. So you take a tram up to the top and then you have to walk down the other side. And when you're at the top, there's no shade anywhere. There's no water anywhere. You are just exposed to the sun. And it's very cool. You get to walk around the ruins, but it's, um, yeah, you, you get a sense of how vital water is and there's not a lot of it there, so. So that's the wilderness. We spent a few days wandering around there. So if we could go to the next one. So this is a, a picture in a close location, but you see in the mountains, um, if you can see, there's little holes in the mountains. 
Those are actually caves. So if you've read in the Old Testament where David would hide in caves, this is kind of what exactly what he would have been hiding in. Um, So some of them are very large, and I'll have a picture of that in just a minute, but some of them are really small, just enough for one or two people, Um, but they're everywhere in the mountains there. And so even, um, it's just interesting to me, even in the the mountains where there's not a lot, God still provided that. So um, that's very cool. You get to kind of, we got to wander around some of the areas where David probably would have been hiding, potentially from Saul and, and some of the other journeys. David had to hide a lot, so there was a lot of, a lot of times he was in caves. Um, but that's something cool that you see even in the wilderness where there's, there's nothing, there's no like forest to hide in. Like we're familiar with forests and mountains the way that we have it here. It's not like that there uh, in the wilderness area. And, and yet even in the wilderness, God provided for him. So, and if we could go to the next one. So because of the desolation of the wilderness, hospitality is a vital thing in the ancient Near East culture. And so that's something that we we got to spend some time really thinking about. When you read the Old Testament and you hear things like, um, you know, the, the visitors were protected at all costs, it's because when you're in the wilderness and it's a five-day journey through absolutely nothing, people that had little outposts there built around springs of water, those were life-saving. There were no hotels to stop at. There was only the water you brought with you. And so hospitality was, it's not just a part of their culture just because, it's a part of their culture because it was life-saving and vital. And so that was something that we spent a lot of time talking about. I, I think that that helps me understand some some difficult passages of the Old Testament a little bit when you understand their culture a little bit better. It's not just for no reason that this is part of their culture. It's because it was a vital life-saving element of of the way that they lived and, and the geography that they lived in. So, um, okay, make sure I'm hitting all my points. Um, okay, so next slide. So we went north, and in the north part of the country, there is vital life-giving water, and we spent about three days somewhere called Lake Kinneret. You probably know it as the Sea of Galilee, but that's actually the the name of the whole region in the north. The actual body of water, especially today, is Lake Kinneret. It's gorgeous. It's uh, cool water. We swam in it every day, and we took a boat ride on it. Um, I because we had come from two days in the wilderness to this body of water, I was also really struck by just Jesus being on this lake, and that was really moving for me. I um, I think the idea of living water and the idea that Jesus told the woman at the well, come to me and you will never thirst again, that was really highlighted after so many days in the wilderness. And so being on this gorgeous lake after that was really um, powerful for me and, and really impactful. And so um, it's also important to note that this is where Jesus did about 90% of his ministry. So a lot of the stories that you read about Jesus in the Gospels, this is where he was. This particular picture was taken in Capernaum, so definitely somewhere that we know Jesus was. And it's looking out across the lake. And then in the very far distance, there's a mountain called Mount Arbel. And I have a close-up of that in just a minute. But Um, That's a place where Jesus, a a high um, place that would have been like a day's walk away, where he probably would have gone alone to pray. It's also on the way to Jerusalem, so we definitely know that Jesus walked through those areas. So um, that's really, yeah, that was really cool to be, be places where I know for sure Jesus was. So next slide. Okay, so 
Um, that's, a the, or that's a circle around the mountain I want to talk about, and then this is a close-up on the left. So if you can see in this picture on the left, you see a valley um, with these two mountains. And so when you read that, that Jesus and the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and a storm came up really suddenly, I think sometimes when we have a, a picture of a lake, that's hard to understand how a storm could just appear out of nowhere, but it's because of this valley. It's called a wadi. And so the weather would come through and you couldn't really see it until it really hit the lake. And so it was very common, still is very common for storms to come up very, very quickly and unexpectedly as weather would uh, move through that valley. Um, so that was just neat, uh, just in terms of a better understanding of, of some of the stories that we read. Um, Mount Arbel, which is the, the higher mountain that's on the left, again, somewhere that we know Jesus probably climbed up there um, and potentially even did some ministry on the top of that mountain. So for the hikers in the room, it was a super amazing hike. Absolutely loved it. And we did it really, really quickly. But on the way up to the top, about halfway up, is a, a, what they call the fortress, which is really um, a, a kind of a little village that they built into the side of the mountain. So they took some of those caves and they really expanded them into this entire little village. Um, so if we go to the next one, I think it's the next slide. So you can see all the little caves, and then you can kind of get um, a closer vision. Like these are actual hallways that they carved into the side of the mountain. Like a whole a group of people lived here. And so there's a lot of um, like what's left of, of their living space there. There's uh, So in Jewish culture, you have to do a ritual cleansing if you've like had contact with a dead animal or things like that. It's called a mikvah. And there is a hanging mikvah off the side of this mountain where they had essentially like built a little tiny, maybe like three foot by three foot little pool where they would have held water so that you could do your cleansing, even though you're literally on the side of a mountain. So it's very cool. Um, so that was a fun thing. Uh, okay, if we could go to the next one. Okay, so um, our last few days we spent in Jerusalem. So we sort of worked our way to Jerusalem because uh, for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it's very... Um, very busy there. It's very touristy site. So um, you just kind of, you get the get the feel of like how the tour works for a few days before you get to, to Jerusalem. But um, spiritually, we started in the garden and we talked about the wilderness. And so we kind of took this journey uh, and we ended in Jerusalem, which there's a lot of tourist sites. There's a lot of cool things to see. There's a lot of historical things if you're into history. Um, but there's also a lot of really powerful places in Jerusalem that we also know Jesus was at. And so this picture is, um, so the larger picture here is a view of Jerusalem uh, from the Mount of Olives. And so we know that Jesus was there. And in fact... Matthew tells us in Matthew 26 that after they had finished their Passover supper, they went to the Mount of Olives after the, um, they sang a hymn, and that would have been a pretty normal thing for them to do. It's not that far of a walk. It's about an hour walk from the city. And so when you're looking, this is, again, Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, and you can see in the background there is a wall. That's part of the wall that still exists that would have been around the city of Jerusalem at the time. And so there is also a view of another garden that we are familiar with. And you can see a close-up of it in the top corner there. Um, and that is a garden that is called Gat Shamin, 
but you probably know it as Gethsemane. And so that is a, a really powerful place as well. So it's about maybe a 10-minute walk from the Mount of Olives down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so uh, we took that walk as Jesus would have done. Uh, in fact, he, Matthew 26, um, I'm just going to read a, a small portion of it. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then, of course, shortly after that, they walked over to Gethsemane, where Jesus spent an evening praying, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And so that was extremely powerful as well, just to be in that garden and to understand uh, that this garden, which you may be thinking of garden in kind of a, a modern Western sense, but gat shamin actually means oil press, which means that it was probably an olive grove. And so to think about Jesus being the anointed one in a grove of olives that would have created the oil that would have anointed the anointed one. And so that was a really powerful image as well. And so that is where I will end my story today. Um, but I highly recommend if you have a chance, go to the Holy Land. Jesus will show you things you couldn't even imagine. So. Can we thank Taylor one more time? Yeah. So you might be wondering, why would we take time out in a service for someone to share about their trip? And here's why. Jesus is real. He's real. He walked the earth. You can walk where he walked. I hope to someday. It, it sunk into me on a whole other level uh, when we were in Greece on our missions trip and we were walking in the footsteps of Paul in the city of Corinth. I mean, it sunk so deep into my heart. And so if we're going to be a real family, uh, a family who is vulnerable with each other, um, we need to know and live with the real Jesus. Amen? Amen. Um, today we're going to take communion together as a family, tall and small, um, all together as one, one, uh, one, one family, one community. But here's the thing is that the Oxford English Dictionary, which I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I frequent it regularly, um, almost on a daily basis, you know, uh, just because I'm into words and smart things. Um, no, I'm just kidding. The, the Oxford English Dictionary defines communion as this. The sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Think about that for a minute. I'm just going to read it one more time because I, I think I forgot to tell James to put that part up. Uh, here it is. This is the definition of commun communion according to the Oxford English Dictionary. The sharing or exchanging of intimate thoughts and feelings, especially when the exchange is on a mental or spiritual level. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? 
uh, because that's the first definition, the number one definition. Definition two and three go on to define it as an action you do at a, as a part of a church service. That's definition two and three, but one is different. Uh, the definition one defines it within the context of intimate relationship. That's what we're catching this morning is it goes on to define it as in the context of intimate relationship. See, the thing I think about sometimes that I know I take for granted and I don't know about you is that we look at communion as an action we do in church rather than something we live life in. And living life in communion with God is the whole reason Jesus came, right? So that we would be able to live in communion with God as Jesus does. Jesus said it himself in his prayer in John 17. This is just before uh, he was betrayed and arrested and he's praying, and he looks up to heaven, and he begins to pray to God in verse uh, John 17, beginning at verse 13. He says, now I'm coming to you. He's talking to God. I, tell them many, I, I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. Take note of that. I have... Uh, I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy in your truth. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect union that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want the, these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you have gave me because you loved me even before the world began. 
Jesus, he said it pretty plainly. The Father and I are one, and I came. You sent me into the world so that they may be one with you as we are one. Jesus came so that we could be in communion with God through Jesus' sacrifice, right? Yes, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that was... (laughs) And it was through his death and resurrection that our sins are forgiven, right? And that is a worthy point of reflection and deep gratitude. But let's not forget why God sent Jesus to do it. Not only so we would remember his body and blood with the bread and wine, but the action by the action of taking communion but so that we would live in communion with God, so that we could live in intimate relationship with God through Jesus. That's the joy Jesus is talking about in verse 13, John 17, 13. Now I am coming to you, God. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they would be filled with my joy. Jesus' joy comes from his intimate relationship with God and going to the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That joy is now available to us. One of my favorite authors, Henry Nouwen, puts it like this, and he's a Dutch priest, so you know he knows what he's talking about. Um, uh, He says it like this, the joy that Jesus offers his disciples is his own joy, which flows from his intimate communion with the one who sent him. It is a joy that does not separate happy days from sad days. Successful moments from moments of failure. Experiences of honor from experiences of dishonor. Passion from resurrection. This joy is a divine gift that does not leave us during times of illness, poverty, oppression, or persecution. It is present even when the world laughs or tortures, robs or maims, fights or kills. It is truly ecstatic, always moving us away from the house of fear into the house of love and always proclaiming that death no longer has the final say. Though its noise remains loud and its devastation visible, the joy of Jesus lifts, lifts up life. <laughs> the joy of Jesus lifts up life to be celebrated. That's the joy of Jesus. So as we take communion today and remember the sacrifice that Jesus paid, remember that the forgiveness of sins wasn't the end goal. 
The forgiveness of sins is so we can be in communion with God, so that we can be in intimate relationship with God through Jesus. The cross paved that way. So when you partake of the bread and the juice today, let's think about what that sacrifice was the end goal to, what the end goal to was for that sacrifice. Let's sit in gratitude that the God of the universe wants to be in intimate relationship with you and you and you and you, and you. Amen? Not so much you. Nope, just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. All right, so here's how it's going to play out. Abby is going to come to the piano and play some instrumental music, Um, and I want you to really sit in this moment and take your time, savor the moment with God. The elements aren't going anywhere. As you feel ready, come forward and take the bread, and the juice back to your seat and savor the moment with Jesus. Reflect on the cross. Reflect on the sacrifice. Reflect on the forgiveness of sins, but also reflect on the love of God that this sacrifice paid the way for. Let me pray. Father God, We love you. We love you so much, Lord. You are our Father, a Father who loves, a Father who allows us to go through difficult things, Lord. Father, but today we remember the joy that Jesus had that he offers to us to be one with you as Jesus was one with you. Father, let it sink deep into our hearts the end goal of what Jesus' sacrifice was for. First Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23, say this, for I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And he is coming again. So as you're ready, come and take your elements back to your seat and savor the moment with Jesus. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.